in the hustle and bustle of our fast-paced lives, amidst the ceaseless demands and unyielding responsibilities, there exists this refuge, a little sanctuary for us that goes uh, unnoticed and undervalued a lot of the time. A precious gift that we all possess, yet we seldom embrace it to its full potential. And what is this elusive gem, this fundamental pillar of our well-being and our productivity, this timeless remedy that revitalizes our bodies, that rejuvenates our minds and restores our souls? Rest. Rest. Do you know how essential rest is for us as human beings? Do we recognize how little we value it as human beings? Don't we often think of rest sort of as this pesky little necessity that just gets in the way of us accomplishing all the things that we want to accomplish? Don't we often think of it that way? If you're a, if you're a doer type, a high achiever, you might think of sleep as some sort of sentence, right? Where you're trying to figure out all the time how you can get by with as little as possible, just the bare minimum, and then let coffee make up for the rest, right? And the fast-paced world we live in tends to applaud and reward that. You know, work 12, 15-hour days, not eight. Eight's for rookies. You can't get anywhere in life if, uh, if you don't work 12, 15, 20 hours a day. Work seven days a week, not five or six. You know, what are these other days for? You got to grind it out every day if you're going to achieve your dreams and accomplish all that you can in this life. But here's the thing I hope to show you from this passage this morning. Not only are regular patterns of rest necessary in order to be as productive as we would all like to be. Not only are they essential and good for us, rest is something we should all very much be looking forward to. It's the prize at the end of this race that we're in that we talked a little bit about last week. And it's the kind of rest, this rest that we're looking forward to, is the kind of rest that completely revitalizes us, rejuvenates us, and restores us. It's a rest where our resurrected bodies will be glorified. Our minds completely renewed and transformed. We won't be able to sin. And we will be able to enjoy rest with God in perfect harmony and union with him. All right, so let's read that same passage we read last week. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And we'll read through chapter 4, verse 11. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had, has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is a guide for us. It is a lamp to our feet. And I pray, God, that you would be pleased to, to use me to, to bring forth your word to your people, that you would feed your sheep. And God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at this passage from a little bit different angle this week. Uh, last week in part one of the sermon on endurance and rest, we looked more at that endurance bit, running the race well, sticking it out to the end, having faith, fearing God, striving to enter that rest, like it says in chapter 4, verse 11. It's only those who finish the race that enter that rest. We said that. Those who hold to our original confidence firm to the end, like it says there. But now today, we're zooming in on the rest itself. This language about a Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. And the Sabbath day, the seventh day rest, is a, uh, a microcosm, a, a, a scaled down version of human history, and creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. It's like a little snapshot of that panoramic view. And that restoration that's in view there isn't just a matter of putting things back to the way they were before the fall. Christ, as the second and better Adam, doesn't just repair what Adam broke. He does do that, but he also leads his people to the goal for which they were created. 
a forever rest and perfect union with him. What the author seems to do here is to say, I know you think you have the promised land already, the promised land that God promised you would have, because you're in it now. You're already there. Joshua already brought God's people into the land that he promised a long time ago. But there's something greater, a greater rest, because there's a greater Joshua who leads his people into this rest. And they're starving for that. They're starving for that rest. They know from where they sit, this, this is not all there is. This can't, this can't be it. God has, God has made promises to us, and I just don't, I don't feel like this is really, I don't think this is where it's at. And we've mentioned before, there's persecution during this time. You know, it's hard to be a Christian. It'd be easier to go back to being a Jew, and that's what they were tempted to do. This is hard. We need a break. That's what they're feeling like, okay? I need rest. And we can, we can relate to that. We can relate to this idea of starving for rest, you know, because it's not just about the severe persecution that they're facing. The Christian life is hard in general. Running the race isn't easy. Life under the sun is hard for everyone, but especially for those who, by the Holy Spirit, have been given uh, uh, the, the mind of Christ, awakened to the truth of God and his, his word and his will for us. But life under the sun generally, just generally, is hard, and it wears us out, and we try to find rest. We're aware of our need for rest. When is the last time you felt really rested? Got it? I see wheels turning, buffering. You got it? How long did it last? Probably not very long. Amanda and I are about to go on vacation to the beach this week. Just the two of us. We decided a few years ago that was going to be a priority for us, something worth making some sacrifices for, for the two of us to be able to get, get away. Uh, important enough to ask Nana and Grandpa to make some sacrifices for us too, because they're going to watch the boys for us. But that rest together blesses us, it blesses our marriage, and I've been so looking forward to it. But you know what's interesting, what's funny is, is leading up to this in this past week, it's been stressful in some ways, just thinking about going on vacation and making these arrangements and preparations and, you know, plans while we're there. What are we going to do? Uh, you know, wh where should we get reservations? Where, where should we eat while we're there? What should we do? Uh, all of those kinds of things, all of those concerns come into play. Have you ever gone on a vacation and coming back, you feel like you need a vacation from your vacation? Where does that end? The point is, as much as that rest is needed and necessary, and as relaxing as this vacation that I'm looking forward to, as relaxing and rejuvenating as it will be, we're going to come home and still want more. There's just a ground that rest won't cover, a distance it can't, it can't travel. 
And instead of grumbling about that, we should learn from that, that we're designed for rest, made to rest, made for a kind of rest we can't begin to understand in this life. And that we only get a taste of once a week. And so we do well to get as much of it as we can every time it comes around. Rest is something that the first man did. It's, God, it's something that God himself did when he finished his work of creation. And he's still resting now. He's still resting from all that he has made, from his work of creation. He rested from his work after the sixth day, and on the seventh day he rested. And we're looking forward to joining him in that rest, y'all. We all know we're, we're, we're tired. We're tired physically, surely physically, but spiritually. We're all hanging on by a thread sometimes in our Christianity because it's hard. Temptation, resisting temptation, uh, being a good witness, taming the tongue, uh, loving the unlovely, making sacrifices, obeying your parents, children. It's hard resisting being conformed to the image of this world. It's hard being transformed by the renewal of your mind. What we all feel and all have some sense of is that the kind of rest we really need and that we're really looking forward to and, and somehow waiting for is a permanent rest where we leave all of that behind and never come back. That's rest. Where we get to rest in peace. Peace knowing there's not a pile of work to catch up on and, and problems to come back to when the vacation ends. We want to know we will RIP, rest in peace. And there's only one way to do that, to live in Christ and die in Christ. Those who do will have, have um, run this race to the fullest, to its completion, re reach the finish line. And it's those that finish the race that enter that rest, that reward of rest in eternity. A rest that we can't fully comprehend now, but that we are just hardwired to recognize we need. We're aware of that, that desire for that. Now, to the readers of the book of Hebrews, the author says, don't miss that permanent rest. You're in the promised land now, but you still know you're looking for a longer, more permanent, more satisfying rest. And you look around and you know you don't have that now. That's obvious, but that's there for you. Joshua couldn't get there, get you there. The new Joshua leads you into that rest. Looking forward to rest is how we endure now. That's going to be the main idea this morning, and that's what the author's bringing out in this passage. There is a promise of entering this rest that still stands, verse 1. We're still awaiting that day to enter into it. For if Joshua, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Realizing that rest awaits us and longing for it, wanting it, and, and, and wanting it because we know how worth it it is, is how we endure 
now to the end. It's how we keep from grumbling and becoming the disobedient ones who do not enter like the Israelites in the wilderness. They didn't enter the promised land due to unbelief. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and where he is headed, where he is leading us, that is what leads us to the end. Keeping your eye on the prize, as they say. That reward, that rest for us in heaven is how we can endure in the here and now. So rather than having some neat points for you this morning, I really just want us to take uh, this theme of rest and look at it a little bit more generally and understand what that destination looks like for us in the future and in the meantime. So if you want to maybe use those as your two headings, right? Uh, Future rest and rest in the meantime. The future rest and rest in the meantime. Because as I've said already, while this rest is something entirely future for us and something that we're all waiting on. We do get a little taste of it every week. That's real. So we'll look at both, this future rest that awaits us and that keeps us going in this endurance race we're in, and then the pit stops, the little checkpoints that God so graciously allows us in the meantime. So when God talked about rest in the Old Testament, it was the promised land, it was the land of rest, the land of Canaan. And most of God's people didn't make it there to that rest because they were obstinate and rebellious and full of unbelief and grumbling. We see that especially in Exodus and in the book of Numbers, and then that's recounted in Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews brings up here in this passage. But what God ultimately had in mind for their rest, for our rest, is himself. The promised land was a place of rest in some real ways for them. It was. But the end game has always been God dwelling with his people again. That's that's the goal. Him coming and dwelling with us and restored and renewed earth. You know, you see that language in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That only happens in Christ, and it hasn't happened yet. It will happen when Christ returns at the final resurrection. So it's not that the land of Canaan wasn't really a land of rest. God didn't bait and switch his people. It was a place of rest for them, but a plot of land can't compare with the presence of Almighty God among us. There's no comparison. It's only a glimpse. The land was only a glimpse, a little taste of what he intends for us. So in Psalm 95, he's talking about entering his rest. And and if they're right, if the Hebrews are right in their thinking that they already had it because of Joshua and there's nothing more to be gained, what in the world is David talking about in Psalm 95? He has to have another greater rest in mind, doesn't he? The the, the promise of rest still stands, verse 1. How is that possible? How is that possible if the promise of rest was what they already had? It's not. It's not all there is. That's the point that he wants for them to understand. You enter this greater promised land by faith, and that's the parallel 
that he's picking up on. That's, that's what he's trying to show them. That's why he brings Psalm 95 up is to, to create, create this comparison. You enter this greater promised land by faith. It was only those with faith who entered the physical promised land. And it's only those with faith who enter the greater promised land. So the land was symbolic and looking forward to something much greater, something much bigger, something better, something everlasting. And what's interesting here is this mention of Joshua, right? Uh, we've said before the book of Hebrews is uh, all about how Jesus is better. He's better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua. And you know how you say Joshua in Hebrew? Not you. <laughs> Yeshua. You know how you say Yeshua in English? Joshua. Which Joshua are you going to follow? That's essentially the point the author of Hebrews is putting before these people. Jesus not only leads you into the better rest, he is the better rest. I'll ask you, what, what do you find yourself relying on for rest instead of Jesus? What substitutes for rest do you have? What are you counting on for rest? I already told you I'm going on vacation with my wife this week. I'm looking forward to it. I really am. I'd, probably, I'd be in trouble if I weren't, right? That would not be an enjoyable vacation. If It's just a drag hanging out with her. I'm looking forward to that, and I should be. There's nothing wrong with looking forward to that. But even vacations however long they are, never totally live up to their expectations. And then we're exhausted when we get home. The worst thing about the rest that we enjoy in this world, the worst thing about the rest that we find under the sun, is it ends. It doesn't last. Vacations are good, weekends are good, having them and looking forward to them is not sinful. But they end! That's the drag. That's the point. We save up for and we wait for rests that don't last. We're designed for a better and everlasting rest that we're meant to have in Christ. Just like we keep seeing so far in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. Jesus is better, right? The message has never been, and hopefully this is clear by now already, it's not the old covenant bad, new covenant good. It's not uh, angels bad, Jesus good. It's not Moses bad, Jesus good. It's not temporary forms of rest bad, Jesus good. It's rest good. Land of promise, good. Vacations, good. Jesus, better. And so when I ask you, what are you relying on for rest instead of Jesus? The problem isn't with the trips or the time off of the work or the relaxation. The problem comes when the kind of hope we're supposed to have and the rest that only Jesus can offer us is invested over into other temporary forms of rest. Now, here's the warning. If you do that, you'll be sorely disappointed. It will be harder for you to endure to the end. You might even find yourself grumbling, unsatisfied and disappointed and disobedient like the Israelites were. 
We're made for rest. We're supposed to recognize our inability to get it to the fullest extent here and to look forward to it in the future. To the rest that Christ has won for us and is leading us into by his sacrifice and by our faith in him. That knowledge and anticipation of that rest keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus and helps us to endure in the meantime. Because life under the sun is hard. The Christian life in many ways is like a woman in labor. It's, it's, it's looking forward to the prize, knowing something wonderful is coming. But in the meantime, it's hard. And what I want for you to know, what I desperately want for you to hear me say as your pastor this morning, is that if it feels hard right now, if life is hard right now, nothing's wrong. (laughs) Not necessarily. I mean, if there's a pattern of sin in your life that's causing you difficulty, that's that's different, and we should address that. But for many of you, things are just hard, and you're hoping for them to get better. You've been waiting, it seems, a long time for them to get better, and they just don't. And it's tiring, it's hard, you feel like you're failing somehow, or that something's wrong, and it's not. It's to be expected. Don't think you're doing it wrong or you're not okay. You are, you're okay. The Christian life is hard, it's exhausting. If you're tired today, nothing is necessarily wrong, nothing's broken, you're not doing it wrong. It just means that there's rest from you from all of that. And you should be looking forward to it. Believe it, know it, and live as though it were true. If you're in the race and you're sweating and you're cramping and aching and thirsty and feeling faint, keep your eye on the finish line. There is rest waiting for you, and the only way to get it is by finishing, not quitting. So don't give up. Strive to enter that rest. Verse 11. Kind of look at in the meantime now. We've talked a lot about the future rest. Talking about sort of in the meantime. Dwelling on that rest that awaits us produces endurance for us now. That rest is like joining God in his retirement from creation. We're not there yet, right? Right? But it's like joining God in his retirement from creation. He took a Sabbath rest, and he's still on it. He didn't take retirement from being sovereign over all that he created, okay? It's not like he's just hanging out doing nothing. But his work of creation, he rested from that. He set it aside, and he's still resting from creating all that was made. And we're meant to join him in that rest, resting from our work. God has been gracious enough to supply us with a taste of that rest every week by giving us his fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed 
the Sabbath day and made it holy. When you read that, does it sound like burden or blessing to you? As I said in the beginning, in our fast-paced society, we tend to think about regular intervals of, of, of rest as a burden. Sleep is a sentence. Don't tell me I have to stop where I, where I want to keep going. If I didn't have to stop and rest, think about how much I could do. Think about what I could accomplish. How many hours I could bill. How much I could build, whatever it is. Our three-year-old doesn't like when we make him lay down for a nap. Because he doesn't know he needs it. He, he doesn't realize he needs it. But we, as, as his parents, we do. We know he needs it, and we mean good for him. This day, y'all, is commanded by God not to slow you down, not to prevent you from doing more and being more and accomplishing things that he's given you the gifts and abilities and skills to be able to do. It's a gift that God knows you need because he made you in such a way that you require it. You require rest. You know, some people look at this passage in Hebrews and conclude that because Jesus is ultimately our Sabbath rest, that the, that the weekly Sabbath points to, that there is no requirement for weekly rest for us as Christians. No requirement to keep the fourth commandment anymore. So now we've just got nine commandments and one suggestion. I mean, that's not in the text. That's not there. And elsewhere, this same author even says, in this same book in chapter 10, that we shouldn't neglect to meet together the way that we are right now. Jesus himself says that he did not come to abolish any part of the law, but to fulfill it, and that anyone who, who breaks the least of these and teaches others to do likewise shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, other people who insist that we are to keep the fourth commandment as Christians sometimes misrepresent what the author says here in verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. They read that and they say, see, we are supposed to observe the weekly Sabbath as Christians, but that's not what the author is emphasizing here. It's pretty clear he's talking about that future rest that we've already been talking about, right? So this is a rest they don't already have and that they're still looking forward to, and it's in Christ. But I want to suggest to you the way that we view the weekly Sabbath tutors us on how we view the eternal Sabbath. And I'm going to say this bluntly, but I don't mean it in a nasty way at all, just as a matter-of-fact way. Okay? If you don't believe that there's a weekly Sabbath for Christians, you're just wrong. Because it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. The Sabbath was made for man. Before it was etched into stone tablets on Mount Sinai, it was etched into the very fabric and being of man who was made in God's own image. We've been designed to operate that way from the factory, so to speak. Okay? Six days on, one day off. That's why the commandment even includes your servants. 
and the outsider, right? The person that's not even a, a part of you, the sojourner within your gates. One day in seven, set apart, made holy by God and demonstrated by his own example in order that we, being made in his image, rest from our labors and that we allow others made in his image to rest from theirs. That hasn't changed. What has changed is which day. That's changed. Saturday was the seventh day, so is, is rest then if there's still the Sabbath? Uh, if, if, you know, the fourth commandment is still abiding, Jesus says it is, then our, our, if it was the seventh day, and that's Saturday, so shouldn't we as Christians, shouldn't we observe the Sabbath on Saturday? Or do we just get to pick any day for, for our own Sabbath? There's people on either side of those, those arguments, uh, but it's our position on the authority of Scripture that the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, is the Christian Sabbath and remains so until we enter into that Sabbath rest with Him or until He returns. So why? First of all, why Sunday, right? And then secondly, why at all? Why a Sabbath rest at all? So let's answer both of those. And again, the reason is because, as we said, looking forward to that ultimate rest in the future is how we endure now. And we're examining this theme of rest so we can understand what that destination looks like in the future and in the meantime. This is the meantime part. By Sunday. We know that Christians met for worship on the first day of the week. That's clear in Scripture. Spelled out in black and white. They gathered, heard the scriptures read aloud and preached, partook of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll have the opportunity to do here shortly. They gave their tithes and offerings, enjoyed fellowship with one another on the first day of the week, Sunday. And it was called the Lord's Day. We didn't make that up. They were already calling it that in, in the first century. And if you looked... Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 12 through 15, you'll see where God is, is repeating the fourth commandment again for the people before they go off into the land that he's promised them. And the context is their freedom and redemption from slavery in Egypt. That's what was purchased for you, Christian. On the first day of the week, redeemed and freed from slavery to sin when Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And so in a sense, it's really like an eighth day. You following me with that? It's almost like an eighth day, a day after days. A day where we get to just dip our toe in the day that is to come. But it sure smells like and tastes like a, that day that we're all waiting for. And that's why, y'all, that's why the weekly Sabbath now is a little taste of heaven in the future. The market day for the soul, as our Puritan brothers and sisters would have called it. It's supposed to be a beautiful picture of what heaven will be like for you. So let me just ask you, isn't, isn't God kind to 
make us wait, but not make us wait without some refreshment? Isn't he kind to give us that every week? Not just when we feel like we need it, but every week to, to stop. That's what Sabbath means, Shabbat, to stop, to cease. So we can just be with him and rest with him. That's what we do on Sunday, rest from our labors to be with him. That's why we worship him on this day. You know, it's not just laying around idly. No, the rest is for a purpose. It's rest from the world and its worries and its cares and its labors to be with him. It's a little taste of heaven. What about Sunday is true of heaven? Well, we're going to worship God in heaven. You know? If that doesn't sound like fun to you, you, you wouldn't like it there. That's what, that's what we're going to do. You know, when I say that, don't get the wrong idea, right? Worship in heaven isn't going to be all of us standing around uh, with hymnals and in, in, in singing and reciting creeds badly. <laughs> Our worship, y'all, will be perfect. We will be good at it, fitted for it. There will be nothing but joy that comes from it. But because we will be without sin, there's nothing that we can or will or will want to do that would not praise and glorify our God. That's what heaven will be like. That's what's beautiful about heaven. We won't ever have to take a break from God to go back to whatever it was that we were doing. Here, we have to take a break from what we're doing to be with God. And we do it together every week on the Lord's Day. It's a celebration and a dress rehearsal for heaven with the people we'll be with for eternity. That's right. We're stuck with each other. But seriously, though, isn't there something really refreshing about coming here today, about being with your people on the Lord's Day? Even the ones you don't know as well as some other ones, isn't there something really refreshing about being with your people on the Lord's Day? We get a break, we get a rest from the people of the world that we love, that we're called to love, right? And we do. But we, we, we get a break from some of that to, to, to come and be with these people. You know, sometimes these people that we love out here that we're called to love, they, they do. They just, if we're being honest, it can be exhausting, they can exhaust us. And you know what? Sometimes Christians can exhaust each other too. <laughs> so it's, you know, that's real. So it's important to recognize that this is, this is, again, what we call a microcosm, a scaled down version of this rest we're talking about in heaven. Just a little glimpse. It's a glimpse, a little foretaste. And if we come to value it, is the interval of rest we have now that points to that ultimate rest we're all craving and looking forward to later, it makes it easier for us to endure now. That's by design. We're imitators of God. And we don't just imitate God at work. We imitate God at rest. So saying we don't need it is like a car saying it doesn't need gas. This weekly Sabbath isn't just a day off. It's a day off with God. It's a day with God. We need that. 
We have to run on that. That one day in seven for divine communion with God where we find spiritual rest and refreshment that keeps us going. And that's nothing less than exceptional. That is a grace of God that he gives us that. So here's the the ultimate future Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath points to, and the weekly Sabbath is clearly intended by God to help mankind now. That's the point. Always has been. The rest that Adam was given that was forfeited by him is restored to us in Christ, and we get a taste of it once a week as we look forward to an an eternity of it in the next life. Here's a challenge for you. In light of all this, I'm not going to tell you how, okay? I'm not going to tell you how, but in light of all this, here's a challenge. Reconsider how you spend Sunday. Give, give, it, some, give it some thought. Consider it. Reconsider how you spend Sunday. Coming to church is a minimum, right? It's the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour and a half, Yeah. Coming to church is a minimum. But let me just encourage you, if you're not feeling rested during the week, reevaluate what you're doing on Sundays. Yeah? Take a look at it. Give it some thought. Give it some consideration. Take that to the Lord in prayer. If you're feeling wiped out all the time and drained, take a look at how am I spending Sunday. You know, and if you feel like you're constantly chasing your tail and you can't ever catch up on things, let me tell you, Sunday's not the day to do it to catch up on those things. You need rest. You need it. If you're ever going to catch up on all the other things, take a look at it. Reevaluate how you're spending your Sundays. If you're chugging along like crazy, waiting on the day that you can finally slow down and catch your breath, listen to me. Today is that day. And the next one is only seven days from now. It's a rest for you. People say, I never have time to read my Bible. Or all these good Christian books I keep getting, I keep buying more books than I'm reading, and they just keep piling up. Sunday's a good day for that. What are you doing next Sunday? You know, I... Really, have thought a lot about this hospitality thing, and I want to open up my home more. I want to, I want to have people over to my home and, and, and practice hospitality more, but I just am so busy all the time, I can't ever seem to do it. Well, what are you doing next Sunday? We should be resting on Sundays. Nap if you need to, okay? Nothing wrong with napping, but it's not about napping. It's about refreshment for your soul. Refreshment that is intended for you now so that you can keep going to endure this race of faith that you're in. If you want a little piece of that heavenly rest now in this life, I'll just encourage you, take the peace God has already given you. Take take the crumb. We're about to get another little piece of heaven right now. Just a bite. 
just a drop, but it's what's needed for us to stay healthy and to grow in Christ. So Christ gives it to us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ himself where the benefits of the new covenant are represented in these symbols and are sealed and applied to us as believers. We partake of his body and his blood, not in a gross, weird, vulgar way, but for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. We're warned in scripture to discern his body and in our own faith. So this table is for those who his body has been broken for, who his blood has been shed for, those who are joined to him by faith. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and been reconciled to God by him through faith and have demonstrated you do belong to his body by participating in the local church and are in good standing in it, then you have a right to this. Now we're going to do this a little bit differently than we have. If you saw the video that went out this week, I explained already, but let me just take a moment to explain again, okay? We're still going to have everybody come forward all at once, and you're going to take the bread and take the cup, and then just, you know, make a little wiggle room. Make a little room for somebody to come up there behind you and, and get to the table as well. Make room so everybody can get to the table, but hold the bread and the cup, all right? And then we're going to take it together, one at a time. I'll say a few words and we'll eat the bread together. Okay? I'll say a few words and we'll drink the cup together. And then I'll pray and we'll all return to our seats. All right? You'll come down these two aisles just like we always do. Exit out these aisles when you return to your seat. Let me pray first. Lord our God, we thank you as we do, for helping us to understand such big things that are so high above us. Thank you, Lord, that you love us as little children, that you make these things and ways for us to be able to understand these simple elements, these common things to express to us, to communicate to us grace that is impossible for us in the flesh to comprehend. Thank you for these signs and seals. Thank you for this, this means of grace that we're about to partake of. And Lord, I pray that you would set aside these common things for a very uncommon and a very spectacular use. That we would grow in our faith. That we would be spiritually nourished and refreshed, rejuvenated, strengthened, recharged. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen.